Um, so I just want to begin with a, a thank you to my generous hosts here at Drisha. Um, this is an extraordinary organization and institution. Um, long before we met, my wife went was here on the Drisha summer program, um, I think 18 years ago, oh. something like that. And our, you know, what became our family has had a, uh, a connection to uh, Drisha ever since then, and a tremendous amount of hakarata tov for what you um, have accomplished, will accomplish, and it's really an honor to be here. Um, and you know, to my friends and. Uh, students and even a few of my teachers who came tonight. It's really touching to see you all again. Um, so without any more emotional words. Um, does everyone have the Makoros? Yes. Does anyone not have the Makoros? Yeah, the second sheet that is on how to read Hasidic texts. Yeah, okay, so could I ask someone to pass them around? The most important thing is to have the sources with the Hebrew and the English. We and if you don't have, look to someone who does have and try and even them out so there's at least one for every two. Uh, no, We're not going to be reading them closely. Okay, just a few. We're not going to be reading them through and through. We're going to be taking recourse to them throughout. So it'd be good to have them, but you won't be uh, lost if you don't. So I wanted to start this discussion of holiness and Hasidism in the Hasidic tradition with two different quotes. One comes to you from Martin Buber, who famously declares that Judaism distinguishes between the binary categories, not of sacred and profane, but of holy and the not yet holy. Good. Emil Durkheim, slightly less well-known these days, but still an important figure in the uh, study of religion, says something a little different. All known religious beliefs, whether simple or complex, present a common quality. They presuppose a classification of things, the real or ideal uh, things that men represent for themselves, into two classes, two opposite kinds, generally designated by two distinct terms, effectively translated by the words profane and sacred. The division of the world into two comprehensive domains, one sacred, the other profane, is the hallmark of religious thought. So Buber says that everything is about to become sacred, and hence nothing is truly or essentially mundane. And for Durkheim, religion is necessarily predicated on an inviolable distinction between the holy and the profane. Now when it comes to the Hasidic tradition, and indeed I think mystical religion more broadly, the truth, like in so many things in life, will lie somewhere in between these two extreme formulations. For the Hasidic masters, the world is saturated with Kedusha, by which I mean sanctity, holiness, and div di uh, divine vitality. Um, but this is not defined in, I would say, adversarial opposition to Chol, but rather in terms of its proximity to God. Now, the Hasidic masters read such, such texts as Melo Chol Aretz Kvodo from Isaiah, that the whole world is full of God's glory, late Atar Panui Mine from the Tikkunim, the Tikkunei Zohar, that there is no place devoid of you quite literally, and pointing toward a rather simple truth. Alts is God. Everything is God. But our experience thereof is defined by a continuum of, multi of intensity. So we inhabit a world of division, particularity, multiplicity, and distinction, and our experience of the sacred is not the same in all moments, in all places, in all deeds, or with all people. 
Now there are masters who describe the entire division between Kodesh and Chol as something bidiyavad. One such text says that there would be no such no sacred space, the Garden of Eden, the Temple, the Oel Moed, no conception of holy prophecy given to certain individuals, and even no such thing as Shabbat or holidays, were it not for the sin of, of Adam and Eve, and then the sin of Israel with the golden calf. In the initial moments of creation, all souls were equally holy, all spaces were equally sanctified, and all days were equally hallowed. And it's only the proverbial fall, the havdil, that led mankind down the rabbit hole of Kodesh and Chol. That's the first text you'll see um, on your Daf of Matoros. I'm not going to read it inside, but it's there for you if you'd like to see it. There he delineates, and I'll try and give you little tidbits. I'd like you to take these home and struggle with them. I've given you English whenever I had it available, um, but uh, you have the guide for reading Hasidic texts, which you should also have, but if you have that in a dictionary, um, and my phone number, which you should feel free to use, or at least my email, I think you'll be okay. There he delineates um, a very interesting, the author, um, tripartite structure of microcosms. Um, nefesh, olam, shana, which is a venerated structure that goes back many years in the history of Judaism. Um, we might translate it as soul or you know, the human plane, the world of space and the world of time, and says that the distinctions that we know in all of those realms, human, one soul, or another, um, olam, which is uh, space, which is the notion of a Kodesh Kodeshim and the different areas um, of the world that have Kedusha and time, sacred time as opposed to regular or, or profane time, all of these things are essentially an outcome of sin. And uh, ideally, and then once again in the Messianic era, these categories will collapse and fall behind us and we return to a... I don't know. We don't have Kodesh. What do we have? But most Hasidic texts frame these distinctions quite differently and embrace them as inherent aspects of the project of creation. So this is our world of distinction, of sacred and mundane, of Kodesh and Chol, which allows for free choice, human agency, and more importantly, a loving relationship between man and God. The illusion of our identity is a precious gift, as one of my teachers is wont to say. So we hold faith in the truth of divine unity, Ein od milvado, that there is nothing else aside from God, while our experience comes through the veil of multiplicity. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Ramchal, offers a beautiful metaphor for this, which I think is quite fitting for his Italian context. Stained glass window. One holy light is refracted into infinite hues as it enters into our world. But of course, our task is not only to observe the beauty of that multiplicity, but it's ultimately to transform that darkness around us, whole, or at least the perception thereof, into light, into sanctity, taking the whole and rendering it kadosh. This is yitaron ha'or mina choshech, the verse from Ecclesiastes that appears in almost every Hasidic book, that greater is the light that comes from amidst the darkness. So I've delineated six categories that we're going to explore together, six realms of thinking and experience that the Hasidic masters, I think, have something to teach us for today. So we have to start with sacred time. The calendar is one of the defining frameworks of Jewish life. Now, for the Hasidic masters, none of the events of our history happened, or just happened, 
in the past. Sacred time is cyclical, and we continuously relive those moments. So even when they're internalized, that is to say when redemption comes from the historical process of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, to the redemption from Meitzar Yam, right, the constricted place of consciousness, which is a kind of personal redemption from the things that hold us back, the holidays and sacred times are unique catalysts for spiritual journeys. I'll point you here to a text we will look at together. Um, the first text in sacred time is a text that comes, comes to us from the Baal Shem Tov, Hakoreyat um, Megillah. Everyone got it there? Good. Hakoreyat Megillah Lemafreya, right? Lo How would we translate that? One who reads or recites the Megillah, Lemafreya? Out of order. Good. How else do we use the word Lemafreya? There it does mean Lemafreya, uh, out of order. I'm sorry? In a disturbing way, right? Lemafreya? Retroactively or backwards, right? We find that also as well. Um, here's what the Baal Shem Tov does with this Mishnah, and it's characteristic, right? The Baal Shem Tov um, takes texts that you've seen a million times before and shows them to you in an entirely new light that transforms the way that you look at the world, the way you look at yourself, and certainly the way that you look at texts. If you look at the Megillah, right, the story of Esther, as if it was something that was a one-time story in which the miracle occurred then and not now, you haven't fulfilled your obligation when reading the Megillah, when doing any of the things that one associates with the holiday, you embody and relive that moment. And your spiritual journey is thrust forward by that unique opportunity. Now, I would also like to take a moment to underscore that I think this text reminds us of what we're trying to do here tonight, which is to uncover the intellectual legacy of things past as a way of experiencing the present. So, the holidays are dynamic... Can't hear? No. No. The mafreya meaning backwards um, or um, retroactively. Thinking that it's only retroactive or thinking that it's only something that happened once and is not happening at the moment. Yeah. Good. And if you have other, uh, thanks for, your name is? Tova. Tova, great. If you, anyone has questions, please do. Um, don't hesitate to uh, thrust your hand up. Is, um, backwards is actually a very specific and, and fine in this context translation. Uh huh. Yep. Great. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> wonderful. So the holidays are dynamic windows of time in which new elements of sanctity are awakened and become accessible. Now, one book in which you find this particularly um, laid out in a particularly nice way is the Bnei Yisachar, which is a beloved early Hasidic book which refers to the process of the uh, holidays as sinorot, or pipelines, each one a unique matrix of you know, pipes um, that lead into this world and funnel kedusha in their own way. No two are alike, and no two fulfill uh, the same function. Now, he was clearly in love with the holidays. Why do I say this? his choice to structure his entire work according to the calendar, not according to the Parsha, but according to the, the holidays, is a unique choice um, in early Hasidic literature and really in Hasidic literature up until our time. 
But the sanctity that he infuses the world on holy days is not a mechanical, automatic process. This holiness is aroused through human deeds. Here I'll turn our attention to the second text in that same uh, section, which comes to us from Levi Yitzchak of Berditcha of the Kedushat Levi. Now, he, in the first two sentences, are going to give you two very different ways of looking at time. That on the holidays, in and of itself, on its own, the gates, the gateways of heavenly lights and sanctity and divine beneficence are opened and they flow toward us. Rock. So that is to say that the gateways of sacred time open up on their own, but we choose how to manifest that vitality through our deeds. And the more we are invested, the more we receive. Now I'd like to skip down just a little bit to the last paragraph in that same teaching. And tell me if you think he's saying the same thing here. So he's saying this with some amount of trepidation. He's not sure. But I think he actually is saying something quite different here. It's not only that the gateways open and we choose then how to funnel that into our lives to chaparain, uh, you might say in English. Here, our deed, our sacred action, is what causes the gates to open above. And any time we see above in Hasidic texts, I think you're on firm footing to translate it not as above, but within, switching a vertical metaphor for a internal, external metaphor. They use those languages, that sort of English here, they use those sorts of phrases that they've inherited from medieval Neoplatonism almost interchangeably. Chitzoni, Pnimi, Lamala, Lamata are all tossed around together. But if this is true, if I'm right about what he's saying, this is a totally different way of looking at the world, which is to say that the moment may be there but nothing happens until we push forward with our deed, taking that sacred opportunity and bringing it into the concrete realm of action. Now, I think this works pretty well for Yom Tov, for the holidays, upon which we recite the blessing, Kadesh Yisrael Ve'azmanim. And the Gemara there says, right, I sanctify Israel and they sanctify the days. We choose the calendar and thus define the contours of the sanctity of the day. But the same principle or a similar principle also holds true for Shabbat, which we must actively receive upon ourselves even though it happens, even though it's a part of the eternal structure of time. Kaviyah v'kayama. Here, I'll point you toward the last text on the first page from the Avodat HaKodesh, the Magi, um, sorry, the Avodat Yisrael, the Magid of Kojenitz. Um, who was an early Hasidic master, a disciple of the Magid of Mezrich, and someone who may have had some direct traditions from the Baal Shem Tov. Here, he offers a very nice teaching predicated on the notion that you find in Kabbalah, which is that the Sabbath is not only the pinnacle of the week in the sense of being the seventh of the days, but there's a parallel calendar in which Shabbat is the middle of the week. 
There's the three days before and the three days afterward. But Shabbat here, like in many societies, the things that are most important are thrust in the middle. They're not only at the apex, I guess the apex in terms of the mountain, not only in terms of the uh, um, linear progression. Um, anyone think, do we see any remez to this in halakha, rabbinic literature? Great. And what's on the flip side? Right. So the Kabbalists point toward these as perhaps things that you know, build some sort of a notion that there's a, I would at least say we're on good grounds to say there's a buffer zone on either side that relates to the particular Shabbat, which is nestled or cradled in between those two sacred times. Um, here, he gives us a remarkable reading of Right? Don't plow and do not harvest your fields. Um, this piece, the thrust of this piece, is really all about the importance of hachana, right? of preparation. Um, a lot of jokes about that, but I'll refrain from telling them until afterward, um, about Hasidim who concentrate more on the hachana than they do on the mitzvah. Um, there's a chapter in Abraham Joshua Heschel's book on Kotsk called Hachana is Derekar. Um, Hachana is the most essential thing. And it's probably a uh, uh, hyperbole um, drawn out of a very real um, love for the notion that a mitzvah is something that you can only do in a single moment. But hachana, preparation, takes as long as you want. <laughs> there is apparently a tradition that the Kotzker, when he was going to get married, um, his father-in-law, respected father-in-law, was in the snuggets, said, I'm not going to let you get married unless you dive in with a minion. He said, fine. Um, and two or three days later, I think he came into the main midrash and saw him davening Shacharit well into the morning. Um, and his father-in-law asked him what was going on, and he said, well, I started with a minion. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably not a true story because it's not sharp enough. <laughs> Here, um, I'm not going to read the entire thing inside. You'll be able to explore it on your own. The, the Avodah Yisrael is the Maggid of Kozhenitz, um, who's really a fascinating and amazing figure in the, in the history of early Hasidism. Um, you know, people make fun of the Hasidim for not knowing halacha and lots of other things. He has something like 40 books. Um, many of them are about halacha. Um, they haven't been reprinted and they haven't been studied, but he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. Um, he went out... Um, with tremendous courage in order to be Matir Agunot and things like that. Um, and yet on the other side, he was interesting because he spoke Polish. Um, and the nobility, the Polish nobility, would come to him for brachot. Um, sort of an enigmatic figure. Um, yeah. Um, he's a uh, uh, descendant, I think, on both sides of the, of the Piazetzner Rebbe. Um, of, of the Piazetzner Rebbe. We'll meet him soon. And certainly next week. Um, so here, as I said, the thrust of this teaching is really about, about hachana, um, but here is an, a beautiful and illuminated reading for the Baal Shemto for Bechari Shibukatsir um, Tishbot. So the Baal Shemto says, Harish is Roshe Tebot, a little out of order, Rivi'i, Hamishi, Shishi. Right? The fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. Okay? And what is Katsir? I don't think it works numerically, but it works metaphorically. Um, charisha, plowing, 
is the preparatory work before something blooms. After something has come to fruition, what do you do with it? Harvest, Harvest it. So the Tishbot is the three days leading up to Shabbat are moments of preparation in which you focus on something that's upcoming, right? As in agriculture, you are attuned to create a fertile soil in which spirituality can bloom. Then, for the three days afterwards, you bring in those lessons. Reflection and integration are the tools for the next three days. So on the one hand, Shabbat is here. The first chapter of the Bible tells us that it's sown into the history of time. And on the other hand, Shabbat is something that we frame, create, and in some way, sanctify. So the thing I want to key on, on here and take it forward is that it's not enough to allow that moment of Kedushah to exist only within Shabbat, but it's also to take it from there into the week. This is a famous teaching that you find in many early Hasidic books. You find it in the Dego Machanei Ephraim, who's the grandson, grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. You find it in the, uh, the Svatimet, who we're going to meet in just a moment, Rabbi Yehuda Arieleib of Ger. Shomer Shabbat, Lishmoat Shabbat, does not mean to keep Shabbat only according to its halakha, but it is to um, protect and to cultivate it during the week. Not only to let it be something that you experience once a week, but something that through preparation and through that reflection is something that then infuses the rest of your week. Now, this teaching from the Svaramet, which is the next passage on your page, um, is a really remarkable one about sacred time, sacred space, um, and sacred people. Exactly what we're talking about today. We don't have time to look at it all together, but it's the way in which these sacred forms imbricate with one another. The starting assumption is, and this is clear from Kabbalah, it's a very old phrase taken from Midrash Tanhuma, if I'm not mistaken, God wants to find a dira betachtonim, a dwelling place in the physical world. It's up to us to build that place. How do we do so? We do so through the power of our testimony, the testimony of our lives, which are, in a sense, witnessing to the divine. Now, in the world of Ulam, Shana, Venefesh, which is to say space-time and the world of the spiritual and the human, there are three different structures. There's the Mikdash or the Mishkan, sacred space, there's Shabbat, holy time, and then there is sacred people. Okay? So here he says something that I want you to keep a hold of. Um, he invokes the Talmudic principle. Um, right? More or less, I think that's, that's a good... Yep. Um, something that is, I'll say it in, in English, um, something that's included in a general right, assumption that then is given uh, in a very clear way doesn't just give, isn't just given as an example for itself, but it reveals something about the general guiding principle that should be in play. Right? It's one of the 13 principles that we use when we're looking at the biblical tracts to try and come up with some sort of a halakhic um, reality based on it. Here, however, he moves in a slightly different direction and says everything that emerges from a general, um, the general sanctity 
comes not to tell us only about itself, but something about the entire world of the, of the holy. So he gives three examples. The Mikdash, or the Mishkan, is not here to tell you that there can only be sanctity in that one place, but rather to point out via the intensification of the Divine Presence in that one place that the Divine Presence is also all around you. Okay, so what about Shabbat and Yom Tov? The holiness is concentrated in those days, not to tell you that the weekdays are totally bereft and profane, but rather to tell you that holiness exists there in a diminished form as well. And here he says two very interesting things about uh, sacred people. The first is they're at Sadiqim. There are holy people to teach you not only about the power of humanity that's invested in them, but in the power of humanity that's invested in you. But then he says, or before then, Uvene Yisrael, Yatsu Minakla. If you want to find a universalistic statement in Hasidism, you're not going to find it. If you want to find allusions to some sort of way of thinking about it, you can find that. What's the obvious end of the sentence, which he doesn't give us here, because the Svatimet is a terrifically elliptical book? Unless I'm crazy, and that's not what it means. What? Yeah, Uvnei Yisrael Yatsumina Klal. The Jewish people... Okay, there we go. I think that's what he's saying, which is to say that there's an intensification in one particular group in order to describe and to reveal the continuum of holiness that exists in all places. <coughs> this, I think, is a key principle that we should take with us. Now, since we're already talking about the Mishkan, I want to talk about sacred space. Not all physical places are the same. There's an amazing teaching. You don't have it here, but you can all go home and look it up. Um, in Rabbi Kalinimus Kalman Shapiro, who is the Piazetsna Rebbe, um, in his book Derech HaMelech, which is something he gets a little bit less airtime for than the Eish Kodesh, but is really a tremendous, tremendous work, on Parashat Pinchas, where he describes the sanctity of Torah spreading throughout a person, into the heart, into the mind, and then throughout all of the physical body, and then extending into the walls and the house itself. This is why Batei Midrash, Batei Knesset, and he adds, Shtiblach, yeah. have Kedushah. Right? It also works very well with the Halacha, the notion that you can build a Beit Knesset, a synagogue, so that it has all of the holiness of a synagogue, but it doesn't attain that state until what? Until the first time it's used. Yeah, I mean, certainly when people use it, but the moment that there's a first sort of Tfilah there, that's when it becomes a Beit Knesset. So then he points out something very interesting, which is the vector arrow of sanctification actually goes in both directions, because the critical mass of Kedushah, focused in one place, a physical structure here, then allows the scholar or the worshiper, whoever, to attain a new level of sanctity. Right? So learning is wonderful to do every place. But learning in a Beit Midrash is a special experience. Davening is a great thing to do anywhere. But davening in a place of Torah is a special experience. Now, in Hasidism, the Rebbe's domain itself, his court, is often described in terms of the temple. Um, the Holy of Holies becomes the Rebbe's inner chamber, the, um, the Azara becomes the place where he receives his guests, things like that. 
um, you find this pretty early on, that there's this notion of the Hasidic court as an epicenter of Kedusha that in some way parallels, I wouldn't say supersedes, and I'll actually say the opposite in just a few moments, but creates a living experience of the temple, which I think is an extension of the notion of the Beta Knesset is itself an extension of the temple, right? The Bima goes in the center because that's where it was in the, te- right, the temple, and these sorts of things are very important. There's an old Yiddish song, Ken Kotsk Fort Manisht, you don't drive by wagon, but now by car, to Kotsk, right? Ken Kotsk Dorf Menoyle Regal Zain. You have to be Ole Le Regal, La Kotsk is doch bim kom der Mikdash. Because Kotsk is there, temporarily in place of, in place of, of the Mikdash. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the journey um, when we talk about sacred people. But this is a very important reality. And when you, t- when you see the construction of Hasidic courts, especially from the 19th century, the majesty is not only utilitarian. The majesty is meant to invoke, on the one hand, a sort of regal presence, and on the other hand, a kind of, I don't know, how do you turn Beit HaMikdash into an adver- adjective? Temple-like edifice, right? Anyone been to Jerusalem? Carry out bells? On the one hand, it's really shocking, right? It's a temple, it's a, uh, uh, a shul that fits like 2,500 people or something like that, maybe more, and looks just like the Beit HaMikdash. And on the other hand, if you go inside, it's an electrifying experience. So, but what I, what I do want to say is that this spiritual reading of Jerusalem, of the Beit HaMikdash, the internalization of these symbols is not a total overwriting of spiritual meaning over physical space. Um, the Svaramet consistently reads Zion, right, Jerusalem, as Zion, a mark or an indicator that points toward holiness, right? but it still means the holy city in physical terms. You can have both of those things. One doesn't supersede the other. Um, And yet, on, I guess, a third hand, you often find references to the Midrashic idea that the land of Israel, the seat of holiness in the physical world, will at a point in the future expand to encompass all geographical locales. So here in the first and only text that you have in your sacred space, um, okay, so Israel will eventually become, right, I guess this is a suburban sprawl, right? It will eventually take over the world, um, and that level of sanctity will be attained everywhere. Doesn't mean that the Beit HaMikdash will not have that unique status that it does. Anyone recognize this phrase, expanding the boundaries of holiness? It's a phrase that Rav Cooks likes. Um, this may be where he gets it. I'm not sure. Um, when he gives his expansive view of the world, he's basing himself on sources. And this is a phrase he particularly likes. Which is something that has its own um, entry in the uh, index at the back of the Morai Naim, who we're looking at now. Um, this is a phrase he also liked. He liked it a couple hundred years earlier. Um, Amongst them, and now he makes it clear, the care of 
נעשה גם, כן, גם כך בכל העולמות, והתרבה גם כן בגשמי, כי הכל תלוי זה בזה בהשתלשלות. So what's he saying? The expansion of the borders of holiness is something that's predicated on a link between what happens within and what is accomplished without. So the expansion of the borders of holiness is a transformation of the human being, and he says here in just a few lines, and you can read ahead on your own, that it happens through, and this is a key word for him, dot. Not just knowledge, but awareness. Right? To look at the world not only with the eyes of physicality, but to look at the world and pierce through your phenomenal perception and know that there is something within. So this theme of, let's say, exile, um, I mean, the opposite of this is that we're we are still in exile. Exile still means the physical terms of dislocation, but it's also a spiritual state of darkness and distance. So redemption is the dawning of a new type of religious consciousness, the fruit of a life of cultivated holiness, but it's also about physical return. It means both of those things. So let's talk a little bit about sacred deeds, since those are the key. Hasidism, in all of its different forms, repeats over and over again that it's not enough to have awareness and contemplation. Deeds are what are asked for. Hasidism emphasizes that holiness can be discovered or revealed in everyday actions. The story made famous about, uh, by Martin Buber about the wagon, um, Levi Yitzchak Berdichev, who finds his wagon, paint, wagon, whatever Balagala is in English, the, uh, um, sorry, the uh, wag, yeah, wagon driver, um, who is painting his wagon, and in doing so, he's praying and serving God through ordinary and physical motions. Um, this notion that he, I think, is correct in finding that everyday actions, whether it's eating or drinking, can be transformed into experiences of the sacred is really there. And it's a very important element of Hasidut, that the world is filled with sparks of holiness left there after the shattering of the cosmic vessels. The, a beautiful, beautiful teaching that you find here, you have it in both English and translation, is the Midrash, which is a late Midrash, about the character of Enoch, right? Chanoch, from the Bible. There are two, but there's one that we know even less about. This one we know a little bit more about. What we don't know is how he died. And so you find this entire genre of Midrash that stretches about a thousand years um, talking about his different journeys and personality traits. One of the rather late ones is fascinating because it tells us what his occupation was. He's a shoemaker. And with each and every threading, he would unite heaven and earth, bringing together the Ribono Sholam, the Blessed Holy One, and Shechina. Right? It's a nice image, threading together. It's probably not an accident. Um, stitching together heaven and earth. This is something that the Baal Shem Tov taught a lot. This is something that many of his disciples have in his name, and even not in his name. It seems to be a very important key Hasidic teaching. Now they map it onto an amazing pasuk. Whatever comes your way, do it with lots of vim and vigor because it's not much going to be happening in the next life, right? It's pretty good for Ecclesiastes. 
turning that somewhat grim way of looking at the world on its head, they say, whatever comes your way, do it with the full thrust of your energy and with the entirety of your presence. And if not, um, even this world can become hell. So this takes on a different form um, in other Hasidic teachings where they invoke the notion of Chulin Shinasu Bitaro Takodesh, which is an old rabbinic tradition of eating things that do not require holiness, right, a state of um, purity, um, even in a state of purity, either out of piety or because of, right, we're waiting for the temple to be built any moment now. Um, one thing to skip just a second um, on page three in the Makorot you'll see Umori Haya Miragle Befume it's a, the second full Hebrew paragraph under the Morinai who's the Morinai? Um, the Morinai is Menachem Nachum um, Tversky of Chernobyl he is the founder of host of Hasidic dynasties um, and the predecessor of the illustrious Kursky family. Uh, many of them um, are still very important Hasidic groups. Um, he's a fascinating early figure um, because he seems to have had some contact with the Baal Shem Tov, but he really understands and carries forward the Baal Shem Tov's project. Um, I'll say more about that when we get to the question of asceticism, but so remind me of that. Um, it's a book that both has a very world-embracing um, spiritual manner as well as a deeply mystical contemplative side. And it holds both of those together and different people read it different ways, but it's a fantastic, wonderful work um, and will actually be translated into English and coming out with Yale Judea, J, the Yale Judaica series um, in the not-so-distant future. Not by me. Mori haya miragle befume vikrot zen would you be so kind as to read slightly, when you try to read it in Hebrew, would you read slightly slower yeah. and with more volume? Sure, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, and I'll bounce back and forth between the Hebrew and the English. So this is what my teacher, and I'm reading here from the translation, was wont to call holy thing, uh, mundane things that are performed in a holy manner. So even something that appears to be whole, profane, right, mundane, we might say, can be transformed into something holy. Now, why? What's the key to this? Key. Bechol davar yesh Torah. Lemashal bachila kama Torah udrachim yeshba. In the act of eating, how many or how much Torah and how many different pathways, right, in serving God are there in that one action? Right? The structures of halakha that guide the way that we practice transform everyday activities into holy things. But in the middle of that rather normative statement, he's actually said something very different, which is, it's not only the fact that the halakha guides the way that we engage with everything that transforms it into holiness, it is kama Torah yeshba. 
stay with me. Ve'amar Mori, my teacher, this here means the Magid of Mezrich, Shechiyut Hadvarim Hahem Hem Mehatorah. The vitality and the life force of the physical world comes what? Comes from where? What Midrash does he have in the back of his mind? Ah, which is the first Midrash in Breshit Rabbah. God looks into the Torah and creates the world. Sacred text becomes the sacred world, and the physical world is an overlay on top of that divine energy. So the notion that these letters or the energy of the Torah that is invested in each and everything becomes one of the very important fundaments of the notion that you may serve God through each and every action. Holiness here, and as Buber told us, is not a matter of on the shaky philosophical grounds here, either ontology or metaphysics, I don't know the difference between them all that well, but a matter of, I would say, attitude and kavanah. The way that you engage with something reveals that which is there within unlike it. Unlike Hoover, he's very clear, and that, that's why he's putting in the normative as opposed to Hoover. Yeah, I think that here, um, this is a it's much more... Just no, no, absolutely. Um, this is a more guarded statement. Absolutely. Um... But here, in the next paragraph, he continues um, as if to push forward this point that everything has Torah and therefore um, can be sanctified through that. Um, he says, and I'll paraphrase here, that this principle, that the Torah is the world around you, should mean that nothing may be treated lightly. No thought, no deed, no moment. Since everything draws the sacred energy from Torah um, into the world, nothing around you should be seen as simply mundane. So why is anything a sore? Why is anything forbidden? Everything's holy. No? I mean, that's the tenth... Oh, so Shabbat Tzvi, who they know about. <laughs> They know about because there's still Shabbatite Svina came around at that time. There are the Frankists exactly at that time who were saying something even worse than Shabbatite Svi said, right? Shabbatite Svi said you have to go into the realm of the Klipot in order to free some of the Sparks and right, the realm of the husks in order to free the Sparks and that meant some sort of antinomian or strange actions and Jakob Frank who was in the 18th century who was perhaps the, I don't know, the pinnacle of that way of thinking who says you precisely have to go into those realms of darkness in order to uplift all of those sparks. They know about these things um, and they go in a totally different direction. So again, why not? This, by the way, is a very interesting reading of the story of Genesis in Levi Tchak of Erdish's book, Kedushan Levi. He says this is the claim of the snake. Claim of the snake in the Garden of Eden. The fruit's holy. So what's the answer? So one answer that's often given is that although things have divine vitality within them, there are sparks that are outside of our range. There are things that we cannot or are, cannot or are not permitted to accomplish. There's a threshold to our service. So there is what is permitted, and everything within that realm is to be transformed. And then there's what is forbidden. And how can you sanctify that realm? sort of a theory of negative space by refraining. by refraining, by not engaging with it. This, I think, brings us to the discussion of halacha. Right? 
it's one of the unfortunate facts of life that many people who are interested in the study of Hasidut are not interested in the study of Halakha. Many of the people who are in interested in the study of Halakha are not necessarily interested in the study of Hasidut. Turns out they actually have a lot to say to one another, both in terms of Sakh Halakha and in terms of the way that the Hasidic masters understood and the way that they decided Halakha. So Halakha is read in many Hasidic texts as Halakha Halicha, a journey. Not the law, but the path. It's a sacred journey that leads to Dveikut. It's not the sacred journey that leads to simply fulfilling the law. The law is a means to an end, but it's one that does guide each and every element of our world. So they quote the tradition from um, Luriana Kabbalah that Halakha is um, an acronym for Hariu Hashem Kol Haaretz. Halakha, um, right? The entire world cries out to God. The world calls to us. And the way that we move through the world is indeed the way of halakha. It's the guide and the... Um, it is often, but not always, coterminous with God's will. But halakha is the way in which we are then able to engage with the physical world around us, knowing clearly which of those categories, forbidden, obligated, or reshut, right, something that is possible, and knowing how to engage with them. So I want to step back from the world of halakha inward into the world of the midot. Right? Midot is one of those words that's impossible to translate. right? Midas, right, in Yiddish. Um, their character traits, their attributes, they're the spirot, lots of things. Um, but in Hasidic works, they generally mean the seven character traits or human attributes, which combine then with the three intellectual faculties. Here we have chokhmah, wisdom, bina, or understanding, dat, knowledge. These are the three intellectual attributes which are followed by seven midot, chesed, gvura, tiferet, netzach, hod, yesod, and malchut, which in translation are roughly love, strength, splendor, victory or eternity, um, beauty, foundation and stability, that's yesod, and malchut, which is shekhinah. So these ten elements, these ten midot, are an embodiment of the divine superstructure, sfirot, within man. They also become an archetype of, um, of emotions and for inner work because the Hasidic masters employ the same vocabulary to describe both the divine and the inner spiritual framework of the human mind, revealing that the divine and human realms are intimately intertwined with one another. There is an incisive formulation from the Magi that <laughs> I almost fainted the first time I saw it, um, the Magi of Mesrich this time. He says, how do we know that God is Midot? How do we know that God is composed of spirit? Because we have them. It's a sort of interesting inverse of Tzalem right? Um, so the seven midot, which are the lower, which are the intellectual, which are the um, emotive faculties, are the ones that are given unto us to transform. They're called the shivat yamei habinyan, the seven days of creation, or the seven days of building, um, which are the days of the week, but they are the seven days of self-creation. 
and indeed the world around us. Now here, the contribution of Hasidut, I think, is very important. These midot, in their negative forms, are never meant to be combated, at least not with the expectation of uprooting them entirely. They are holy at their root, and the midot must simply be pruned and cultivated in order for them to blossom correctly. They are to be sublimated in the positive sense, uplifted and redirected toward God. Um, the classic proof text that you find is Ish ki kach et achoto chesedhu. When a man takes his sister as a wife, it's an act of chesed. That's what it says in Vayikra, it's not me. Right? It's an act of chesed. Okay, so I'm translating everything except the word, but that's what it says, right? Go look it up. I mean, there's something in the, in the middle. I didn't quote it exactly right. Chesed happens to be one of those lovely biblical words that we have a lot of, and also in English, that they can mean themselves and their opposite, right? It clearly means abomination in that context. Um, the Baal Shem Tov and his students read it rather daringly and say that this is a misappropriation of the human quality of love. Love can be given in ways that are permitted and in ways that are, in ways that are sanctioned and in ways that are... Um, okay. Yeah. I'm choosing my words here carefully. Um, so, yeah, I'll go back one, just, just one moment. Um, the biblical verse clearly means that it is forbidden to marry one's sister because it is an abomination. The Baal Shem Tov reads that and says, it is indeed an abomination, but the abomination is an act of misguided love. There's only one kind of love that comes from the human being, right, or exists in the heart of the human being, right? Agape and eros, it all comes from the same place. That love can be manifest in entirely wonderful and positive ways, and can also be manifest in the most terrifying ways, in the ways that destroy society, in the ways that kill, hurt and destroy people. Any other one of them, don't, we could say the same thing. Strength, courage, right? The power not to say something can be amazing. It can be wonderful, it can be transformative, and it can be terrifying, it can be deadly, it can be icy. Tiferet, splendor, beauty, can be dignity or conceit. Now we have these within us, and we choose how they are applied. So the Midot, as I said, are not meant to be combated or overturned, but they're meant to be worked with and transformed. Um, there's a tradition here you'll see in the text from the Morayinayim under sanctifying the Midot from the Magid of Mezrich where he says that each one of the six days of the week you take one of the six Sfirot except for Malchut, the six Midot, and you work with it. Sunday is Chesed, Monday is Gevura, and you stick with it. And each day, sort of like what we practice during Svirata Omer, which is an extension of this same notion, you work with it until you get to Shabbat, right? Until you get to the seventh day. Now, here he also maps it onto the six psalms that we recite as a part of Kabbalat Shabbat. Then in order to have the experience of Shabbat, you have to go through the difficult work of wading through those negative character traits, pruning aside what needs to be taken away, right? 
lot of beautiful plays here in this in the Hasidic literature about um, Le Zamer to sing a song, Suke de Zimra, uh, the power of song to clip away, to also to to prune. Um, it's the same root in Hebrew. Um, all of those things that you don't want about yourself and allow the beauty of those midot, the kinds that are not only sanctioned, but the kinds that are world-sustaining and life-affirming to come through. So as I said, Avodah B'Gashmiut, I think, is a, uh, serving God through the physical world is a really important idea in Hasidut. The, one of the few texts that we actually have from the Baal Shem Tov himself is a letter that he wrote to one of his disciples. And in that letter, he criticizes his disciple, not for his lack of assiduousness in study, not for his laxity in interpersonal commandments, but for fasting. And he says, you haven't gotten the picture. It's not about fasting. There's a story from Rabbi Nachman of Horodenka, who was another close um, um, compatriot of the Baal Shem Tov, who says that when I was in my younger days, I would go to a cold mikveh every day and in order to rid myself of any sort of extraneous thoughts in davening. I think he has a certain kind of thought in mind. And he says it was so cold that no one could withstand it, no one in this weak generation. He does say that. Um, and that when I would get home, I wouldn't get cold, I wouldn't be able to get warm for an hour. And yet I still had these thoughts until I met the Baal Shem Tov, who taught me not to fight them, but to work with them. So here there's a great metaphor given by the Magid of Mezrich that any sort of machshavah zarah or any sort of uh, negative thought during davening, a stranger alien thought, or any negative manifestation of a midah is not a moment of battle, but a moment of opportunity. Now he puts this into the metaphor of when someone comes to you to rob your house in the night, you have two options. I'm not going to go into the third option. Two options are to... Um, scream for help and the person will run away or you can call the police and grab them by the hand and wait till reinforcements come. It's not a practice I would necessarily recommend in the physical world but in the spiritual world I think the nimshal is clear. If you simply banish you might say suppress all of those thoughts or all of those negative traits, they're going to come back again. If you grab them by the hand and sanctify them, noticing that they are an experience, they are an opportunity, then you can work with it. So, a part of this work, however, is the Vashemta clearly is against fasting. The Magid of Mezrich, who is his student, retains a pretty fierce regimen of fasting until the very end of his life. These two voices are both a part of the Hasidic tradition, and there is an ascetic impulse within Hasidism. So the Talmudic dictum of the Kadesh Atzmecha B'divrei Rishut, to refrain from doing things or to refrain from eating for an hour or to push oneself beyond one's ordinary capacities, um, is very important for some early Hasidic masters who inherited the Magid's deep distrust of the physical world. So we have both of these models, which is there are moments in which the physical world can be expressed through engaging, the uh, sanctity is expressed through engaging with the physical world, but there's also a voice, and I think it is an important one to keep in mind in the modern world, in which one can uplift the world precisely through tempering one's you'll forgive a brief anachronism, material consumption. Okay, sacred speech. 
the Hasidic masters, as for many Kabbalists before them, see the Torah as God's will. But the will that was once ineffable and unknowable, that comes into language. Reading and studying its words allow the scholar to touch the infinite, divine sanctity that are found within its words. But the revolution in language in Hasidism um, is actually much broader than just sacred speech, whether it's reading the Torah or in, um, or in prayer. Shekhinah, the tenth Sphira, the Sphira Malchut, which is associated in earlier Kabbalah with speech, has been imbued within mankind. We are, after all, creatures defined by language. And the Hasidic masters read what the Zohar says about Moshe, HaShekhinah medeberat mitoch grono, that the Shekhinah, during Revelation, spoke from amidst Moses' throat, the Zohar's understanding of Mosaic Revelation, and extends it to all of the speech of a tzaddik. Okay, that already is a very radical statement because then everything that is said becomes revelation. It's a very interesting moment. Okay, but the revolution's actually much bigger if you start to poke around because Hasidic thinking about language goes beyond that. God's sanctity dwells within all words that are spoken with holiness, attunement, and purity. In 1800, um, Rabbi uh, Avigdor of Pinsk wrote a pretty bitter letter to the Tsar. He was no friend of the Hasidim. Um, denouncing them for all sorts of heretical, uh, heretical deeds and beliefs. And one of the things that he says about them um, is that they believe that God becomes manifest in their words. So, uh, unfortunately for him, the person on the other side of this fight was Rabbi Shnur Zalman of Liadi, um, and he rebuts every one of the um, aspersions cast against them, except for one sort of lets this one off the hook. And that's very interesting. Um, because if you open up the Hasidic books, that's exactly what they say. God can become manifest in human speech. That the words of speech are vessels into which divinity may be drawn. Because of that, going back to the sacred myth of creation through Torah, our words are like the words of Torah, just as the sacred text holds an intensification of the divine, so too can human words hold some element therein. You know, namely, man becomes a speaking, a ruach mamala, right? Becomes a speaking being. That is, right? That's our lifeblood. Absolutely. But it goes even farther than that. Not only is it, like Aristotle says, definition to who we are, it becomes not only an expression of our humanity, but an expression of our link with divinity. Yes, exactly. Okay, so don't we have some sort of a term for holy speech? Social Do even better. Lashon Kodesh. Right? The holy tongue. Um... So uh, this is one of those terms that everyone debates over what it means. Does it apply to Biblical Hebrew? Does it apply to Mishnaic Hebrew as well? Is it because Hebrew is a divine language of creation, revelation, and prophecy? Or is it holy because of its unique aesthetic qualities? Or is it simply a wondrous conventional language without any obscenities, as Maimonides suggests? Footnote, by the way, Ritva, who was a Kabbalist from Ramban's school, um, writes a systematic defense of, the, of Maimonides against Nachmanides' attacks. When he gets to Rambam's position on language, he says, <laughs> there's a limit to what I'm willing to say. 
Um, the fact that Maimonides says that Hebrew is essentially the most beautiful of all languages, but just like every other language, is conventional, is crossing the line. So, it's in Hasidism for the first time that one finds the notion that any language spoken in sanctity and with contemplative awareness can rightly be considered holy speech. Now, I've brought you a text here um, from the more of a Shamesh, who is Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman, not Shapiro, but Epstein of Krakow, um, who is a disciple of the Noam Elimelech, who is an understudied but not underappreciated early Hasidic leader. He is unique for lots and lots of reasons, but one of the things is that he lives um, until the 1820s. Many of the Hasidic masters died in the 1810s. The fact that he died in the 1820s meant that he knew everyone from the previous generation and lived for 10 years into the next generation and served as a transitionary figure in transforming the Hasidic message for the next generation. Here he quotes the famous Midrash. Why were we uh, redeemed from exile in Egypt? On account of three things. We didn't change our garb. We didn't change our names. We didn't change our speech, which means Lashon Kodesh, right? Jews have a language that we've always retained. And that speech is redemptive. That speech is redemptive. But here, if it's only Hebrew, he points out, but didn't they need to learn Egyptian to be able to speak with the Egyptians? Right? And he asks a question I don't think you'd ask anyone in the 13th or 14th centuries asking, which is, what does it matter if you change your language? No, you also wouldn't find anyone in the 1830s saying that. Because in exactly the same year as he's giving this drasha, the Khatam Sofer is starting his tirade against changing anything in the synagogues, including speech, right? Preaching in German and praying in German. What? Right? And as the famous historian Yaakov Katz pointed out, that everything new is forbidden by the Torah. There's never been something so innovative in its world, right, in, in the world. So he says, you're reading, the Mor says, you're reading that Midrash too literally. The fact that they didn't change their names, that they didn't change their speech, and they didn't change what they were wearing, it's a, a deeper idea, which is they didn't change their attitude towards language, and in doing so, whether they were speaking Hebrew or Egyptian, because all languages, and this I think is important, are ultimately rooted in the sacred divine tongue that created the world, from which all human language comes, anything you say can be the Shon HaKodesh if you say it with the right contemplative attunement. Did he endorse praying in another language? Did he speak another language? The answer one is no, and the answer one is yes, right? He clearly did not speak Hebrew. He spoke Yiddish, which happens to have the same letters, so it works well. But he understands that we live in a polyglossic world. And the notion that language itself, uh, holy language, is something much bigger than just the definition of Hebrew, I think is an important one. And this is something that I brought you one, but there are five or six other texts which say it with almost the same clarity. Okay. Sacred people. My last category. I don't know much on the code. Yeah. Maybe I'm pushing something. But is it Hebrew per se? I'm sort of back to Amor and Naim and Noah, where it's really Lashon Kodesh is synonymous with Kedusha, and it's investing that language after the Tower of Babel 
into all civilization. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the thought, in light of your theme that mm -hmm. you're presenting tonight, That's very is, nice. not, is not for mm -hmm. civilization mm -hmm. of society, mm -hmm. but the investment of the Kedusha, mm -hmm. symbolic of it's very interesting because in many places the Moenaim does say that Hebrew is the root of all other languages and it's the fact that they're linked into Hebrew, whether he means that etymologically or philologically or, you know, I think he means it in a, a spiritual sense, um, creates a sort of network of sanctity that goes back to whatever Lashon HaKodesh is, but you might say Lashon Bikdusha or Lashon something like that. But it pushes it further, which mm -hmm. is investing Kedusha not just in the Jewish people, yeah. but he's investing Kedusha into all civilization. Right. So if I didn't say it and it wasn't clear, I think the notion here is something much bigger, which is, I think, part of what you're saying, which is that Lashana Kodesh is about humanity's quality of speech um, and the way that society is built on speech, um, allowing that Kedusha to come through. Could you elaborate on Rambam's idea that you... Oh, Rambam, yeah? I'm asking. Oh, Maimonides says in uh, two different places in the guide, one he says language is conventional, which is quoting the Stotilian doctrine, that people get together and you know, like, agree on what a word means. And then he says in, I think, you know, chapter 8 of the third part of the guide, he says um, Hebrew is a language uniquely beautiful, both because of its aesthetic sense, but because it doesn't have any obscenities. Which, you know... If you ever read Ramban's commentary on Kitisa, he is not happy with, because Ramban is a Kabbalist and also someone who like, likes Hebrew in a certain way. Um, he cannot conscience such a thing, that Hebrew is just like all the other languages. You know, anyway, there's very interesting historical layers here about who's writing in what context, and um, both of them are arguing with um, dominant societies, which are saying that Hebrew is a denigrated language compared to either Arabic or other languages. Um, okay, anyway. Um, Sacred people. Yeah. Uh, it sort of echoes the theme you've mentioned a couple times tonight, which is that idea of mm -hmm. God looked into the Torah and created the world. So Hebrew is so essential because the world comes out of that. And like other things you mentioned in particular, is then revealing on the universal. Great. So one way that they bridge between these, though, is saying that all language is built up of the 22 letters of Hebrew. It's, a sort right, of it's essential because the world is created. Right. But it's a funny morphological argument that every, every language is a sort of a different cluster of the same sounds that humans can make. Um, um, but I think what you're saying, Daniel, goes back to what Nachman was saying, which is the root of language, the root of Torah, which then infuses or spreads out to all other languages, like a sort of network or a tree, I guess I would say. Fantastic. Thank you both for your, your, uh, for your comments. Okay, good. I want to push forward and then I want to conclude because I want to leave time for enough room for a discussion. So the tzaddik, the Hasidic holy person, um, is someone who lives a life of total devotion and service. Now, one thing I want to instill right now is that the early Hasidic tzaddik um, is not someone who is born qualitatively different. He might be talented, but he too is a seeker, a teacher on the path to the divine who has achieved a great deal but is permanently in motion. There's one early Hasidic text that says that the tzaddik is different, don't ever try and be one, you're never going to be one. Okay. That is not the dominant opinion. That may have become the dominant opinion in many places except for Poland, which up until the 20th century, um, dynastic um, succession was not the rule. Not the rule. Right? 
it might have been a student, it might have been someone who was related in some way, but father to son that didn't happen in Poland in the same way. Now I know in these texts it's always a him, um, or not always, but mostly. In our contemporary world, in thinking about this category, I would underscore no, not necessarily. This is clearly a category that is not gender dependent. Now, the Piazetsna Rebbe has an amazing description of the tzaddik as the focal point of sanctity in the world, an intensification of holiness in the physical, who can then share of that spiritual vitality with others through inspiration and even infusing them with energy, as need be. Now, to move into a slightly different camp, Rabbi Soloveitchik, not a Hasidic master, <laughs> I hope he's okay with me saying that, he used to quote the two versions of, um, in the Talmud of that that you cleave to God's midot, um, or to cleave to the talmidei chachamim, to the sages, and say that those are the same thing. When you find a teacher, you discover a model of imitatio dei in the world that teaches you how to walk in God's ways. And this embodied instruction, I think, is actually a pretty good way of thinking about the tzaddik in Hasidism. You can ask me questions later about miracles and things like that. I'm not going to focus on that at the moment. But this power of the tzaddik um, allows him, or in our context to her, to descend away from a cloistered religious existence into the physical world and into the humble masses. There's an amazing teaching here from the Noam Elimelech where he quotes, um, he says there are two kinds of tzaddik. They're the kind that need to be monks, essentially, staying far away from anything that might curtail their religious service. And he says there's another kind who, because of the centeredness that they have developed through their religious devotion, it doesn't matter where they go, they transform the world around them. This is his reading of the Mishnah. Um, Basar Kodesh um, Lo Hisriach Meolam. One of the miracles in the temple that the Sacrificial meats never went off. Basar Kodesh, someone who has transformed themselves right, into holiness, Lo Yisriach, Lo Eno Masriach, I think it is, will never become right, rotten, as it were, Meolam, forever, but. Oh, thank, right? Oilam in Yiddish, right, and also in Hasidic text, means the people. Meolam, nothing. If you, know, right, if you know who you are, nothing can move you. And if you've created that centered um, inner world of sanctity, then you can bring that to anyone without losing it. So uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe once was asked, um, what's the difference between a rabbi and a, a rabbi? Um, and I'm sure he gave many answers to that question on many different occasions, but the one he gave on this one was that a rabbi waits to answer a question and the Rebbe goes out to the people. He doesn't wait for someone to ask. So the last note that I want to add here is the communal element, um, which is related to the tzaddik, because that's where you gather, but also to the notion of holy people, because fellowship is really crucial to early Hasidism, and, and really up until our time period. The mystic's path to God, even with all of its important introspective elements, leads directly through the community. This is some 
fellow travelers on their way to the tzaddik, explaining, uh, exchanging bits of information and teaching one another, but it's also to look humbly at the people around you and to know that you are both a teacher to some and both a student to some. And every time you gather together in a community of devotion whose united goals and mutual support um, allow you to teach one another and thereby attain a degree of sanctity that is greater than the sum of any of the various parts. Here, the Morva Shemesh, one of the people who really focuses on this, says that you can attain great heights all alone in the wilderness, but there's one thing you can't attain. Kedusha Elyona. The highest degree of sanctity will be forever hidden from you. So, I hope that these sorts of texts read themselves fairly clearly in the modern world, which is to say that the contemporary application of them isn't too hard to find. Hasidism, or the theology that I put before you, has something to say to modern <coughs> people living in what um, scholar Charles Taylor has called the secular age. I think that in terms of sacred time, sacred time, the cycles of time that have given way to linear progression, and holy time has more to offer us than just a respite from technology. You know, and this I often think that Heschel didn't know from Facebook, but there's more to holy time than the absence of engaging in the world and the illusions of progress. That holy time is stepping with the fullness of one's being into a slightly different dimension in which one believes in the power of the human being to become more ennobled, more spiritually attuned, more open, more giving, not only because of where they are physically, but because of where they are temporally, in a time sense. But also holy space. It's not only palaces in time that can be called holy. I had the great privilege of living in Israel for four years. And life is different there. And it's not simply a matter of what a critical mass of people can create together. I had a teacher who once said that he refused to go up on the Temple Mount not because he believed that it wouldn't be holy, because he was afraid he wouldn't feel something there. Elie Wiesel, in one of his books, says that when he came to Jerusalem for the first time after the Holocaust, he saw the rebuilt Hasidic courts um, and he saw everything <coughs> that they had had in the, whole world, in the old world and they were missing something. And that was the longing to be in Jerusalem. So, I guess because I'm young, I went up. And I've never felt anything like it. That's transformed the way that I look at space forever. But here, I think that this is about continuums, as we've talked about before. There are lesser degrees and greater degrees of intensity. And in understanding that, we should be mindful in cultivating sacred spaces. When it comes to sacred deeds, I think that it's easy, as we all know, to lapse into carelessness, complacency, or simple numbing apathy. The Kutzker famously said, who is a Hasid? One who asks themselves at every turn, my ta'ama, what's the reason? Why am I doing this? To what end? Sacred midot, I think, offer a holistic approach to personal growth, spiritual progression, and even healing. That no aspects of the self should be left behind, and that the work is never done, but on the other hand, that you are 
at your core, a holy being, allows for an approach to hard inner work that is both challenging and embracing. Sacred speech, I don't think I can find anything more relevant in a world that words come faster than ever via an ever-increasing number of networks and social media. But in my experience, and I speak both in terms of a listener and a speaker, fewer and fewer of these words are spoken with the proper intensity, commitment, and attunement. Mm -hmm. The Maggid of Mesrich once said that the, uh, to say something is like the birth of a child. You have to hold on to it for nine months, and then it will be ready. Mm -hmm. It's probably a hard person to be a student of that. <laughs> but I do think we've also forgotten the power of silence, which we might describe as the sacred white fire amidst the black fire of our furious communique. So holy people, modernity obviously comes with the skepticism of authority and role models. Present scandals in many different religious communities haven't helped matters. But I believe in the power of meeting sacred individuals, sometimes teachers, sometimes students, sometimes fellow travelers, who can, in a single moment, transform the way that we look at ourselves, the way that we look at the world around us. I want to end with a very brief teaching from the Kedushat Levi. He says, Kedushati l'mala mi Kedushatchem. It's the Midrash's comment on Kedushim Tiyo. And he says, just add one comma. Kedushati l'mala mi Kedushatchem. Sorry. Yeah. Which is to say, not my sanctity is above and beyond anything you can ever attain in your humble physical form, but that the divine sanctity is manifest, is um, magnified, and is revealed through the earnest quest of humanity to live a life of holiness. So now I'll invite a, uh, a conversation in the time that we have left. Not everyone at once. How ancient? <laughs> I'll say just something very brief, which is the Hasidic masters, one of the things that's so frustrating and so delightful is that in order to read a Hasidic text correctly, you have to know everything that comes before it because it's all there. And they're layered upon one another. So for a student of intellectual history, it's a very exciting genre. Um, the de development from the Bible to Hasidism is huge. Different universes. But on the other hand, the Hasidic God is the God of the Bible, perhaps more so than some medieval gods that can't move and can't talk and can't impact the world in clear ways. 
Um, a Protestant Bible scholar, I think it was, not that long ago, in his commentary on, on Vayikra, on Leviticus, points out that if you trace the way that Havdalah, the Havdil, um, the Havdil B'Kodesh, the Kodesh Kodeshim, the way that the word Havdalah functions in many biblical contexts, does not actually mean a break in which there is one and then the other and there can never be inter, any sort of interpenetration between them, but rather that the two exist in mutual self-definition in which there is a porous engagement between them. And there's a... Oh, yeah. But Hamavdib and Kodesh the Kodesh we also have, right? Um, yeah. So it's a continuum, right? That's what I said, because I think that really is there. So, of course, it's Kodesh and Chol, and I think there is really a clear basis for that in biblical text. On the other hand, there's no clear, let's say, rabbinic precedent for the opposite of Lashon HaKodesh. Right? In the Mishnah and Sota, it says these are supposed to be recited in Lashon HaKodesh, and this is supposed to be recited in all other languages. right? With a chaf and not with a chet, right? In any other language. So I think the categories of Kodesh and Chol are actually very you know, fluid and they don't always fully entail. Um, and so the Hasidic reading of Lashon HaKodesh may actually, right? It's not only in contradistinction to the Chol. That's what I mean to bring out by that point. So I'll ask you a question that I asked Kasseh Kazama, and that is, if this is so contemporary in terms of your presentation, and hopefully others are espousing similar pieces, um, not sure who, you've been terrific today, why is it that Hasidic today in the world that we know versus the words of these early masters has become so conventional, conservative, small c, and doesn't seem to embrace the world that you describe. It's more of a sociological question. Okay. I'm not sure it's a fair question, but there it is. It's a fair question. Um, I can give you the long answer, but I want to give you the short answer, which is um, I don't wear a shrimal, as you know. And I don't live in a Hasidic community. But I do believe that these texts have a tremendous amount to teach the contemporary world. In that sense, I'm part of a growing movement called Neo-Hasidism, right? That began with, well, depends on who you ask. <laughs> there was an article published not that long ago in which it began just a few years ago within the world of modern orthodoxy. It begins with someone like Martin Buber. It begins with someone like Hillel Zeitlin who goes into the Western world and comes back to the Hasidic tradition and says they've lost the original mystical fire that really infused early Hasidism. But it begins earlier because people like the Kotzker, or even earlier, Rebbe Nachman, are looking at the world around them and saying charisma has become institutionalized. What was once originally a vibrant doctrine that was daring theologically and socially has now become ossified and antique. This sort of dialectic has been there really since the 1790s. The war with modernity, the closing down of the borders to keep out new ideas, 
the advent of the dynastic system, which on the one hand brought great stability, and on the other hand brings with it all of the negative things that come with a monarchy that goes down from father to son or father to you know to other relative, um, have all contributed to a very complex social phenomenon, which is Hasidism. Um, Every once in a while within Hasidic groups, though, you find people who recapture that original sense and return to the books. Um, if you ask most contemporary Hasidim when they learn Hasidut, it's a funny question, right? Um, but even in the world that they practice, the, the, the world of their practice doesn't underscore the types of, princi- types of principles mm-hmm. that you're putting forth this evening. Mm-hmm. That's to me, part of that whole So it's all of those things that I said, and in the purpose of full disclosure, what I've presented is a selective reading. I think it has to be a good selective reading and a convincing one. Um, I don't think I do it with any sense of intellectual dishonesty. These are not the only texts out there. But the, the communities, I think, are driven less by ideas and more by ideology. And those are very different things. It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I learned so much from you tonight, thank you. Um, it seemed that your, your statement quoting the uh, from uh, Sefer Vayikra about incest being checked has shocked many people. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, uh, how does Hasidus understand uh, the relationships between uh, Cain and Hevel and their sisters, which is what the Pasuk Alam Chesed Yivaneh, which appears in Sefer which one of them is not in the Torah. Uh, that, you know, that, that's what we first, or how do they, you know, could, could you elaborate? Because many people seem shocked. It's funny, you know, I've taught that principle in dozens of different places all over the world, and no one's ever been shocked. It's great. Um, learn new things every day. Um, so it's I hope it's not more of a shocking answer, but you don't have to go far in any culture back into the mythos to find some sort of incest at the heart of the culture, right? And the sort of taboos that are built on those creation myths exist basically in every culture if you go back far enough. Biblical culture is not any different than that. Um, and, the, and by, I mean, that the sanctified marriage of, like, you know, early relatives and then the later societal taboos that either grow out of that or grow out of some sort of recognition that is then grounded in that myth. We could argue about that all day. Um, You know, Kabbalah has a lot of incest in that specific sense because Kabbalah is the sacred mythos of medieval Judaism, which recaptures a biblical mythos or myth um, which is alive and well in the Kabbalistic imagination. So the elements of God which are embodied in different celestial figures, there's a father and a mother and a child, Um, you find engaging in different acts and the divine family, there's intercourse there. Um, No one would ever think that that should be applied in the physical world, right? I mean, it's not, the social taboos are so clear on that. Um, Within the world of the divine, within Cain and Hevel, I mean, the fact that I've never seen a Hasidic drash that's troubled by that question tells me that it's part of that sort of you know, mystical, uh, mythical imagination. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. 
Yes. Let me just say just a few things about that. Um, you know, there's a funny phenomenon, you would only see this in Israel, um, where Hasidic groups will dress up as one another <laughs> on Purim. Right. So on Purim, everyone knows you dress up as a thing you'll never be, right? Something crazy. So like, you'll see these... Right, exactly. And so you'll see... Right, exactly. So you see like people wearing... Uh, if they ordinarily have the um, the ribbon, uh, the knot on the ribbon on their on their hat on the one side, it'll be on the other side. And ordinarily, that's enough to get them thrown out of yeshiva. But you know, in Purim, it's okay. Um, so, uh, by means of that, I mean in the modern world, especially when they all live in the same city and are fighting for money and power and you know followers, you find a lot of very small differences that, like in any turf like academia where the stakes are very small and the battles get very bitter <laughs> but no, going but I, I want to talk about the ideological differences which go back to the heart of the movement so you have the Baal Shem Tov who says serve God through joy don't fast right be engrossed in the world uplift the world around you and then you have the Magid who says I never understood anything in Judaism until I met the Baal Shem Tov but by the way I'm going to keep fasting I'm going to be an introverted mystic who will assemble a group of scholars to me and not ride around in my, like, whatever, my, uh, uh, my uh, cart from village to village, even if that's only hagiographical. Um, and instead of ecstatic experiences that point outward, everything in the mystical journey is going to go inward. Right? These two voices are intertwined within Hasidism. And for different personality types and for different Hasidic groups, they both become very important. Right? This is actually something I heard just recently. That um, So Karliner Hasidim are known for shouting during their davening. Right? Um, and Chabad Hasidim um, of a certain age were known for not moving at all. Okay? So you need to know that. The Slonim Rebbe once walked into his shul and they started davening, and everyone was shouting. And he said, we're not Karlin. He came in the next day, and everyone was standing straight upright. And he clapped again, and he said, we're not Chabad. <laughs> but those are the three Chabad groups that you mentioned. Oh, exactly. That's significant. So they're all in the same... Well, the only three, everybody right. else Okay, but these are... Right. <laughs> so this is... But no, just one second, just one second. These are all groups that live within close context... Con- close proximity to one another in white Russia and know each other very well and branch out in very different ways. Now I want to answer your question, which is Poland, you find a totally different style of Hasidism. And in Ukraine, you find a totally different style of Hasidism. In the Ukraine, you get very early dynastic succession. You get an interweaving between economic and religious life. You get the Rizhen community and Derech HaMalchut, which is the Rebbe as a king riding around on four white horses. And, you know, it sounds crazy to us, but in the same way that England has a monarchy, Jews have also, like, 
there's something nice about having a king and there's something wonderful about that. In Poland, that would never pass. In Chabad, that would be antithetical. Chabad says, Hamoach shalit alalev. The mind is what counts and that's what rules over the heart. So what do the other Hasidic masters say? Someone who the first founder of Chabad is actually in dialogue with and is a student of, says, don't ever think you can start with the mind. He says, start with the heart and then you'll get somewhere. Go from the heart to the mind and then to the realm of the beyond. I think that one of the great things about the study of Hasidism is that when you start to read the texts against one another and not simply in a sort of panoply that we call Hasidism, you start to see that this is actually a polyvocal movement in which multiple personalities, multiple mystical approaches, multiple ways of approaching everything from education to prayer to the inner life to what a Rebbe himself is, is different. And, you know, there's a Shlomo Karlebach had a tradition that um, he would give out copies of Hasidic books to people um, that he thought were the right book for them. And, and there's something to that, which is that every once in a while, a Hasidic book, you'll open it and you'll never leave. Yeah, Aaron. Aaron, the last question for tonight. Thank you. It's wonderful to really encounter you. I've read most of your stuff, so it's really a, an honor. Um, you began by uh, drawing a distinction between Rumor and Zerkheim, between the holy and the not yet holy, versus the sacred and the profane. Um, and then you gave a beautiful presentation that made the world so saturated with Kedusha that it leaves me wondering um, what, is, what is still whole? in this world. Is it just the not yet holy? Um, I can just talk a little bit more about that. Great. So, I think is right. But I think that Buber overplays his hand, at least in the way that it comes off when you hear only that one quote, because the Hasidic masters clearly acknowledge our awareness of whole. Even if at the end of the day, when we close our eyes and sink into that infinity in those rare moments, we know that everything is kadosh and everything goes back to kadusha. Our normative, our normative experience of that on the everyday basis is not. And so, indeed, the world is full of the divine. And indeed, the world is infused with kadusha. But most of the time, our experience won't be of that. And that illusion, right, this is, I guess I haven't said it, but I will say it, simtsum, the retraction or the withdrawal of the intensity of the divine that leaves room for everything that we know and love of creation, which indeed, you know, has things that are kadosh, but many, many, many things that are whole, is the very fundament of the project of creation and mankind's part of that. So you could translate this phrase from Buber back into the original Hebrew which is a great phrase that you find from the Magid and from, um, from one of his disciples, that God made the world yesh me'ayin. Um, right? Creation of something out of nothing. And it's the job of the human being to make ayin me'yesh. We, in tracing back everything to its ultimate root and divine unity, ultimately reach a place of understanding that there is a oneness, probably capital O, of being that unites everything. And you know what? We still have to open up our prayer book and say Baruch Atah, dialogical encounter with someone that lies in front of us. 
And that's not a compromise. Not in any way. It's an inherent part of what it means to be a human being. To have a dynamic spiritual life in which you grow close to God and far away from God. Right? The Baal Shem Tov and his students constantly cite a principle, which probably has Socratic roots. Ta'anug, tamidi, eno ta'anug. The pleasure that exists forever without interruption is not real pleasure. Ratzo show. You grow close and then you drift far away. And that vacillation or peregrination between those extremes is actually one of the things that gives spiritual life its, um, its great sense of adventure and vitality. Not to mention the ability to withstand something because those moments of pure Kedusha are moments in which time, space, self melt away and then the Hasidic masters with Heschel behind them would tell you and with that you'll never transform the world. You'll never transform the world with that consciousness of the oneness, right? In that retreat into the contemplative self or ecstatic self, however you want to talk about it, unless it's manifest in deeds, which again go back to the world of distinction and division, you haven't helped someone and you haven't transformed the world around you. Which goes back to the Dirab Tachtonim that we talked about earlier. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.